opportunity to lift up me and my dad's relationship, but hoping this will inspire you to share and chat more with your dad, be it your biological father, grandfather, stepfather, like a father, or any other variation. I am your co-host, Aisha DeBerry, and I am sharing this time with my fabulous co-host, my dad, Roy DeBerry. Good morning, Aisha, and it's, it's good for us to be back together again on this podcast. I hope we say some things today that would be of interest to our audience. Well, today we want to share this time to talk about what I'm sure you see as a hot topic, voting. So sit back, stay tuned, and share love. Before we start, I want to mention the intro to this song that you just heard. Uh, That is actually a song that was composed by a distant cousin of ours who is a cellist. And we've known each other for quite some time. And when I say that, I said we were related. We found out later that we were uh, related. So that is the reason why I say that. But he is a wonderful cellist. I have, so at this point, not practiced as much anymore as he had, but he has gone on to do some great and fabulous things. So that is his original work. If you ever want to hear more from him, you can reach him on social media at classic underscore carpenter. So that's at K-L-A-C-C-I-K underscore C-A-R-P-E-N-T-A. I promise you when you follow him on his social media, you will not be disappointed. He has an array of different styles of music, but all based from the cello and classical music. So hope you enjoy, but we just want to give a shout out to Kwame. So Dad, you know, of course we're going to talk about today voting, but I just want to get a little bit of history from you. But before you talk about that, I just want to admit to you, and you may not have known this before, but when I was at Northeastern, I think I may have been 19 or 20, and we had a conversation over the phone, and I said that I had never registered to vote. And you were just so taken back in the moment. And now looking back, I understand why at the time I really didn't because I, I don't know. I just never thought about it. I guess at that time I was in college, maybe because I was living in Boston and didn't really have a connection with being a a resident there. Have no clue. Maybe I didn't know what the absentee process was. I can't say, but it was not a priority. Let's say that. But after, (laughs) after we had this conversation, you were very clear and said, you need to at least register to vote. So I think maybe six or seven months afterwards, I said, okay, let me get serious about this. And looking back, like I said, I wish I would have done it sooner, but I'm glad that we had the conversation because who knows, I may have gone years without uh, thinking, not realizing the priority of voting. So good morning, Aisha, again. (laughs) So before I talk about voting, let me just also say, uh, Aisha mentioned uh, our cousin uh, Kwame who is a cellist and uh, is, I hate to say atypical, but oftentimes a lot of kids of color, for whatever reason, sort of stay away from uh, classical music. And of course, Aisha and, and uh, Kwame had an opportunity to be exposed to a fabulous cello teacher. Yeah. It just turns out that Kwame stayed with it and Aisha moved on. <laughs> Uh, I must tell her that she still has a a cello in her house, which uh, I put a lot of investment in. And at some point, I hope she she does decide to 
go back and uh, play it again. Otherwise, I'm tempted to sell it on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to uh, pick it up in this quarantine. I might just pick it up. But on a more serious note, yeah, voting voting is all is something very serious. At some point, we'll talk about that uh, 26th Amendment, but I won't jump ahead of myself. I want to quote from, not so much quote, but just paraphrase Joseph Lowry, uh, who recently passed away there in Atlanta. He was an icon. Most of you in the audience probably know that he, along with Dr. King, founded the uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference in Atlanta, Georgia. And he was sort of King's right-hand or left-hand man for a long period of time. I think he lived a long and wonderful life somewhere in the neighborhood of 90 years. Mm -hmm. So we just honor his legacy and appreciate all the great work that he did to move the envelope in terms of human rights forward. With respect to him making voting, he says that voting was not necessarily given by government. Uh, it came because of blood, sweat, and tears. That means that people had to sacrifice in order to, to get that right or put pressure on certain institutions for them to open up. And speaking of institutions, I always, and you a lawyer, I'm a political scientist by background, but even before then, I think we all can appreciate civic engagement in, in history and what have you, even in middle school and high school. Mm -hmm. And all of us have been exposed to the Constitution, and some of us have read it more than five or six times. I took the time last week to read the entire Constitution again and also look at every the articles to the Constitution and all the amendments to the Constitution just to give a sort of a context to today's discussion. So with respect to voting, well, you know, the Constitution was ratified in 1787, and course in that constitution there was no concept of universal suffrage um, we know that came much much later for me and we our background uh, in terms of our history has to do with the slave trade and with slavery so clearly we were commodities we weren't, weren't even considered citizens so therefore did not have the right to vote and one of the things and i mentioned that in our first uh, podcast and, and during my discussion in, with this book called Voices from the Hill Country, there's a, a wonderful woman named Sarah Robinson, and you have me to remember her name, Right. Uh, was asked the question, why did she sacrifice so much to, to vote? And she says, well, first of all, for her, voting was important because they realized they had to struggle and fight to get that right to vote. But she also said that it makes her feel that before you can talk about citizenship in a real sense, one should vote. And so for her, she didn't feel she could be a citizen really in this country and not have the right to vote. So fighting for the right to vote and getting the right to vote made her felt like a citizen that she's now passed on, thinks she was in her early 90s when we interviewed her. So this voting thing is important. With respect to suffrage, as I said, it was not universal. With that first constitution, it only applied to uh, wealthy white uh, males who own land. Uh, blacks could not vote. Native Americans could not vote. Black men could not vote. Black women could not vote. White women could not vote. Even the one that um, lived with husbands who own land. With respect to how we, again, evolved, there was this destructive civil war that took place between the years of 1861 and 1865. And out of that um, had grown the Emancipation Proclamation, which was signed in 1863. 
but we really didn't want to consider citizens until the 13th Amendment, which took place in 1865, which pretty much said black could no longer be held as bondage. So they had to be set free. Then we had the important uh, Civil Rights Amendment, which is called the 14th Amendment, which occurred in 1868. And of course, we didn't get this voting uh, thing until about 1870 or so which really pertain only to black males. It still did not pertain to women and uh, black females. Uh, so that would come later. Uh, so this notion of voting has just been very important because for the most part, for most of our history, he has been denied. Mm -hmm. And even when we went into reconstruction for about 10 years from about 1866 to 1876, when there was a compromise at pulled the troops out of the South and put the former Confederates back in control. Blacks had a little bit of an opportunity during Reconstruction to participate in the political process in an alignment between what was called the radical Republicans from mostly from the North and black majorities in the South that had been bondaged before. They were able to elect themselves to offices to, for the first time. And anybody that knows the history of, of political science or anything about the history of this country, you, we know that Hiram Revels, who is a Mississippian and buried in Hollis Springs, were the first uh, African-American ever elected to office um, mm -hmm. and also was the first one elected to the United States Senate from Mississippi. And he served uh, for a number of years. And there were others, of course. That did not last long. As I said, 1876, that was pretty much wiped off the map. The South pretty much took control again. And one of the first things they did was take away the rights of Blacks to, to vote. Mm -hmm. And so it was another 100 years or so and that over the 100 years, Depression, World War One, World War II, Korea, uh, really Vietnam, before Blacks got a right to vote again. And that came out of the Voter Rights Acts of 1965. And it was because of the Civil Rights Movement uh, and the struggle that people engaged in, and voting being a key component of that, that they achieved this. And I also wanted to mention that it was women got the right to vote in 1919. Mm -hmm. So clearly in that, for the most part, I, I referred to women uh, outside the South because black women, again, uh, in the South, like black men were pretty much denied that right until uh, 1965. So we have an incredible history uh, of denial. And of course, with respect to 18 year olds that you mentioned earlier, uh, that had been previously 21. Mm -hmm. And because of this notion of if you can serve in war at 21, if you can fight and die, mm -hmm. why should you have the right to vote? So I think there was a sentiment now, and this came in 1870, I mean, I'm sorry, and came in 1971, that they reduced the age by an amendment, 26th Amendment. The age was reduced from 21 uh, to 18. So when I came through college, because I didn't turn 21 until some years after high school, um, I could not vote because you had to be 21. Mm -hmm. So when I got to be 21, I didn't hesitate to uh, go and vote. So I, yeah, I was a little chagrined when you told me that uh, <laughs> you had not registered or voted, uh, right. given the history. And right. perhaps I had right. not told you this history, so that I take some responsibility for that. Good, I'm glad. And, and I think that's important. I think that's another thing to note. You just brought that to my attention about us making sure to share stories of our past with our children. And that's, a, I think, a major reason why, I'm not, I don't think, I know that's a major reason why 
I decided to do this podcast so that we could begin to open up stories around you. And even I share stories about me that we don't know about each other. I think as family, we take it for granted. The things that we know, we just kind of go through our everyday lives and don't really focus on, well, why are you the way that you are now? And tell me about when you were a teenager or when you were a college student or when you were a young adult. And it doesn't have to be all gloom and doom. It can literally be um, transparent and honest because that helps children to understand why they may be doing the things that they do. But that's a sidebar. Um, well, I think it's a very important sidebar, though, because I think you write this intergenerational thing is very important. And mm-hmm. oftentimes, whether it was the baby boomers or the Gen X or the millennial, oftentimes you have that disconnect. You know, young people feeling that uh, older people don't have anything to say mm-hmm. and older people feeling that young people don't have anything to offer. And so you get this dichotomy. Uh, and I think your idea about this po- podcast is a wonderful idea. Um, I'm glad you decided to do it. I'm glad you asked me to participate. And, and perhaps, unfortunately, sometimes it takes a pandemic or a crisis <laughs> <laughs> for people to do what they all do that they don't do. But uh, right. it's better late than, than it's better late than never. That's true. So I applaud you for the stepping out and, and doing this podcast. Thank you. And I'm glad, of course, you're my fabulous co-host. So I want to talk, you just mentioned about the intergenerational piece. So I would be considered in the Gen X-ish slash millennial. There, it, There's different groups and different people that talk about the age range of who falls into which group. Nonetheless, someone who is 40 or younger, which I would fall under, has some apathy around voting. And what I mean by that is they do not believe, and I talked to some of my friends and, you know, some of my niece and nephew's friends and such, they don't truly understand the importance of voting. And I shouldn't even say importance. They don't think if they decide to vote that they're going to see anything from it. So what is the point? Why am I even going through this voting process if we still have, you know, a situation like a Tamir Rice or a Trayvon Martin? Why am I still voting if I'm not really getting any tax benefits and I'm struggling day to day just to make ends meet. So what is the point? Yes, I know that, you know, folks in your age group dead or possibly older actually went through a process of a movement to see the change, but our group doesn't really have that. They don't don't have that connection. So why do you still think there's a value for us and those who are younger than me to vote? It's a very complex question as one that I'm glad to see you raise it. Uh, I'm not sure that there's a direct correlation between voting and whether or not you're going to get something directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, I do go back to Ms. Um, Sarah Robinson that makes the case that we live in a democratic republic, not a democracy, but a democratic republic, unlike, say, ancient Greece. And in that democratic republic, we have seen the struggle from slave trade to slavery to not having the right to vote, to getting the right to vote, to 21-year-olds moving to 18, getting that right to vote. Mm -hmm. So I think it's something about citizenship, one, that in order to be engaged as a citizen in a democratic republic, voting is one piece of it. It seems to me there are two fundamental power streams in America. One is economic wealth, Mm -hmm. and the other one is political wealth and political power they all don't necessarily come together. Sometimes they are mutually exclusive. 
In other words, there are people with political power that don't necessarily feel that they have the right to vote because they have access to the institutions. They have access to money. They have access to powerful lobbyists. Mm -hmm. And those people get direct access to the politicians that will determine whether or not they get all kinds of breaks with taxes. Uh, you see that in this recent pandemic where if you have the wherewithal and you are connected, uh, you get things, i.e. you had money set aside for small small businesses. Right. And now it turns out that the people that went to get the money that have small businesses found that the money had gone and been utilized by people who are very powerful business people. Mm -hmm. now, a few of those people have done the right thing because I guess they have some semblance of a conscience. They have decided to give the money back and that's that's good. However, on the other hand, those people that don't have uh, economic power can have political power. And if you go out there and vote at every level, whether it's a local level, state level, regional level, uh, or national level, you can have some control over what those politicians do or more directly, you can decide on who those politicians are gonna be. So if it means electing some of the people from the Gen X generation and electing people from the millennial generation or whatever's gonna come in the future, you have a direct input. Now in terms of direct benefit, although I don't go that route, but those people who wanna go that route, that's say young, your age and younger, who say, what do I get out of voting? And if what does what difference does it make? I take the position that whether you vote or not, somebody's gonna get elected and somebody's gonna impact your life. Mm -hmm. And the question is, do you want people that you had some say about who's impacting your life as opposed to people you don't have any say? And that means that, you know, I, I talk to college students too, because I work with them, high school students as well. And they have things that they are concerned about, whether it's uh, student loan if they go on to college. Right. or student debt if they've been to college, uh, medical care, which they may not be of interest to them now, but in the future uh, will be of interest to them. Jobs, who get jobs, who don't get jobs. All those things, you got rules and regulations, usually come out of the state house or they come out of Washington or they come out of your local level. Are you going to be a player, uh, active player, are you going to uh, be an activist? Or are you going to be a reactivist? Mm -hmm. Are you going to react or are you going to act? And my preface is, I don't care what age you are, you ought to precipitate in a position to be an activist, to be proactive as opposed to reactive, not sit back and wait for things to happen to you and complain about it, but take an active part in saying, I am going to control my destiny and I'm going to have some control over my future. Politically is one way to get there. Now, economic is another. If you got both, I think that'd make you even more powerful. Right. Um, but, but the lobbyists gonna be there. And so the question is, how are you gonna counterbalance that? And right now we're seeing concrete examples of that with this pandemic. We saw, we're seeing the contradictions between those who have and those who have not. Right. And kind of the devastating effect it will have on you. See, now you have a reference point. So for the average Joe, just tell us a little bit about how you got involved in this process of being, I guess I could say, interested in, in the political process. Where did it start for you? Well, it started very young, I think. And everybody doesn't have that perspective. I understand that. In my case, although I was not old enough to vote, I was around people who were older in my family, 
in my school as citizens, they were not citizens really because they could not participate in the political process. They could not vote. Mm -hmm. So SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and other civil rights workers, including activists in my local area, when they got the opportunity, which was difficult, they wanted to put pressure on the system to open up. Now, it meant taking your life in hand. Many people died. Many people uh, was hurt to do this. So I had an opportunity to go out and canvas and go door to door after we had been put into what I call consciousness raising classes. And mm -hmm. people told us about the importance of voting. So we went out and, and talked to people, mo mostly teachers even, and, and said, why don't you register? And most of these people are afraid. Mm -hmm. And so in some cases, they closed the door in our face. Later on, I understood that because they realized that to, to vote meant a loss of job, a mm -hmm. loss of income. If they rented from somebody, that means they could be evicted. Uh, if they lived on somebody's plantation, that means they could be evicted. Uh, in some cases, their names were put in the newspaper. So if you were a maid and you tried to register to vote, your name was put in the newspaper and the people would see that you had registered to vote and they would, um, uh, that little job as a maid, you would lose. Wow. And in some cases, people were uh, hurt, uh, killed, murdered for simply trying to vote. So I hate that context. I don't really understand that everybody doesn't have that as right. a way to say, I'm going to fight against something. But I think there are barriers now that are much more insidious uh, than these obvious barriers that we face. Apathy is one of them. Mm -hmm. Because you think about the whole focus on voter suppression, which is not a new phenomenon, by the way. I mean, a lot of people talk about it now, about how people making it difficult to vote. We saw examples of that in Wisconsin where people went through great lengths to vote and, and, and didn't get the opportunity. So these voter suppression things, and if you look at history, is repeating itself. Right. You had poll tax and literature tests, and now you have all kinds of barriers set up, like uh, not being able to vote absentee, not being able to vote by mail, early voting. And I don't want to jump ahead, but this whole notion of voting on Tuesday, we should be trying to open up the process and make it truly universal, making it easy for people to vote, not difficult. Because this note of voting on Tuesday is, as you know, based in agrarian society. Mm -hmm. Back in the days before 1845, when people were farmers and they horse and buggy and, 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 and they went to church on Sunday and they had market on Wednesday, as they do now in a lot of southern areas, people go to market. So you had that. It was convenient right. for people. And you had voting in November as opposed to the summer and the spring because people, you know, plant in the spring and harvest in the fall. That was all the history. You can give it all that stuff now. People got planes, people got cars, right, people got right. Zoom, they got internet, they got all this stuff, uh, modern stuff to communicate. And all these people will say, well, you know, we want to keep things the way they used to be. If that's the case, then why don't you go back to the horse and buggy? Right. I don't see people clamoring to go back to the horse and buggy. So right. why should we be clamoring to say that you need to have election only on November the 2nd or whenever it is, or the second first monday and first tuesday november that could be any day right i mean it could be any day now with with the technology and you want to make it easy for people to vote and those people that don't want to make it easy for you obviously have an agenda yeah and that agenda is to keep you home keep you apathetic keep you uninvolved and keep you controlled 
only way to get your freedom and your independence is to participate. That's true. That's a good point. I'm glad you're bringing up the alternatives because of it, it is ridiculous because when we saw across the nation, people standing in line for two and three hours just Nonsense. to vote is ridiculous and again helps to create this barrier. So a little talk to me a little bit about and young people can help change that by the way, excuse me. They right, can help change right, right. that barrier. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about the electoral process, because I'm still coming from the lens, just throwing that out there to you. Okay, Dad, all right. So, you know, you gave me some context, and let me be clear and put this out here right now. We're not that far removed from being able to vote, seriously, because, and I, you shared this with me before, Dad, you know, you got your parents, if I believe, if I'm correct, or maybe your grandparents. My vote. parents. Your parents, okay. So, parents to vote. So, that means, I have been around with my grandparents in my lifetime and they could not vote at some point. So that's how close we are from the change happening where we could vote. So I just want to put that out there for context, but also in asking you dad, okay, so you gave me the history story. I now know that we, you know, recently really just got the right to vote. I know people died. I know people fought. Okay, I hear that, but what's the deal with this electoral process? Because, I, yeah, I get the popular vote. I understand that part, but what, what's this whole electoral process about? Well, you know, there are, and you don't have to be a political scientist to understand that, or even a lawyer, as you are. Uh, our system is flawed. There's no magic system, uh, although people, and I tend to agree that the representative democracy perhaps is the most advance of the systems, although capitalism got some issues, major issues. But this notion of electoral colleges is again a flawed process where clearly the majority of people can vote for a candidate, at least at the federal level. And because each state is given sort of similar weight, small states as well as big states, uh, it makes the big states it put them at a disadvantage to some extent because they have most of the people. Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier, we are an agrarian society. We used to be, but now we are very much an urban society. And the people, majority of people in this country for a long time have not lived on farms. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, a lot of people that live in the large states in, like California, New York, and Michigan, and Pennsylvania, and Ohio, and Georgia, Tennessee, you know, uh, Texas, are kind of like at a disadvantage to some extent because agrarian folks still pretty much control. That's at the federal level. At the state level, that's different. And at the, at, the, at, the, at the local level, that's different. You have a direct impact on who you elect. There's no electoral college in, in, in Georgia. Right. There's no electoral college in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. That's straight voting. Right. So the people that get the majority, get the people out there, uh, will determine who holds the office. So yeah, the barriers are there. It's flawed from the standpoint of the natural, natural, national electoral system, but it's what we got. Mm -hmm. And I don't see it in, a, in the short term that's changing. So in the short term, because that takes all kinds of amendment, majority of the states to do it, smaller states are not going to do it because they, you know, they want to keep things as they are. However, those areas I just mentioned, state and local, and those state and local elections are important. Right. You see that in Georgia. Mm -hmm. We all came very close to electing a progressive, intelligent, independent Mississippian Mississippian black woman. <laughs> yeah, and for whatever reason, uh, that didn't happen. 
a lot of that relates to voter suppression. Mm -hmm. And so there were people that was disappointed, say, well, you know, this woman who was clearly the most qualified candidate did not get elected primarily because of voter suppression. Well, who had, who was secretary of state? Mm -hmm. The guy who is now governor, who controlled right. the voting process, the guy who is now governor, who used to be secretary of states, because secretary of states tend to control the, the electoral process in the state. So you can change that by putting people in place that you can elect directly mm -hmm. uh, to bring about that change. You are the change. You know, we've heard that old expression before, right? Right, you right. The change. So do you complain after the fact or do you get there and say, Oh, we lost this time, so therefore I'm not going to go back and vote again. Well, you're going to end up keeping people like this current governor in power. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to the point of what you're saying of whether you vote or not. If well, let me backtrack. If you don't vote, that means even more someone's going to get in that position. So whether you vote or not, you know, uh, know that that person that position will still be filled. So. If you can vote to make the story change or possibly have someone different in the seat. That's um, exactly right. That's exactly right. It's a question of whether or not you want to be proactive or reactive because mm -hmm. you go on to get people in office that you either like, like like their issues, or you're gonna get people there that's you're not gonna like, you're not gonna like their issues, and you're gonna complain about it. But right. it's too late then for at least four years. Right. <laughs> right. So I guess what we're trying to say is we're not just wanting you to look on the federal level or the national level for us lay people, not just looking at the president, but actually looking at your officials that are in your state and in your city, in your community. Those are the people that truly can change the ideas of what was before, but also work in your favor based on the candidate you choose to really help you have a better life, if you will. Absolutely. And it's at the local level where it's most impact because mm -hmm. that's where streets, that's where garbage, that's where even the public health, that's where decisions are made about quality of life issues, where schools are built or not built, who get mm -hmm. the resources in those schools, who don't get the resources, uh, who gets internet, who doesn't get internet. I mean, right. we have a situation now where it's just awful, where people are asked to work with their kids online. Yeah. And a lot of rural areas do not even have access to high speed internet. Right. And so that's a that's another opportunity for more inequity right. built into the system. Yeah, it's easy for kids who have internet service. But I, I remember, you know, I'll just give this one example where my nonprofit is located up in North North Mississippi, Bend County. And a lot of the kids used to come to the library, uh, use the internet, and then in the evening they would come and park their cars in front of the library. Well, the library is now closed now with everything cut down. Right. And so those kids had to stop going to the library, the only source that they had to use an internet. Now, how, how are they going to compete with other kids from around the world right. who have access? And these kids don't. They're just going to get further behind academically. And then people are going to look back and say, well, what's wrong with those kids? Mm -hmm. Why aren't they good in math? Why aren't they good in science? Well, hell, you have drive them from the opportunity to stay on par. Yeah, that's such a good point, Dad. And, and now in regards to this pandemic, I believe even more so you're seeing how you can vote for or against your interest. 
And when I what I mean by that is, again, not exercising the right to vote, in particular, people in your community, city, county, who do not run along with the ideas and the resources that you need pass you by. And uh, if you are not voting for someone that is, for example, what you're talking about, ensuring that there's adequate internet accessibility, that there are, I mean, even from that standpoint as well, library libraries in the community and the hours open at a decent time, not just from, you know, eight to 12 and two to four, what we're seeing sometimes in Atlanta, just based on cutbacks then we're not forward thinking because what does that what does that affect yeah that effect may not feel like it has something major right now today but what does that look like five or ten years down the line to what you're talking about if you didn't have the resources starting where do you where do you get that where do you play catch up and at that point you're so far behind right and it's usually a response i mean for example with telemedicine uh, uh you're told during this pandemic you know get on the internet and Zoom with your doctor. Well, mm -hmm. again, a lot of people who are poor and don't have jobs and don't have resources can't do that. Right. So that means what do they do? Uh, they can't go into the doctor's office sometimes because they're told not to and mm -hmm. therefore don't have access to the doctor online. So again, if, if you are not, if you position to be proactive and make sure the system is fair, and treat people equally, then you don't have to find yourself in the situation, the predicament we're in now, because right. we would have had these things in place. Uh, once they're not in place, then you see the, 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 the obvious contradiction right. and the, the obvious disparities. Uh, and it's deadly. It's not something that, you know, taken lightly, it's deadly. People die because they don't have access to these resources. Absolutely. I want to take this moment right now for those we were talking about the pandemic and we know that, <clears throat> excuse me, voting is getting ready to come up uh, very soon here for many of the elections. If you are not comfortable with uh, going physically into a place to vote or you feel that social distancing is not enough for your comfort level, don't let that stop you. You still have an option to register in your state as an absentee. So please find out where you can do that in your state because again, we don't want to put up yet another barrier. In fact, you hear this podcast and you're now motivated to register or motivated to go and vote if you are registered. Well, another thing you can do because of the local thing is just like people now are asked, people go to Walmart, they go to other box stores, they go to grocery stores. Georgia's sort of opened up things again because it's capitalism is hurting mm -hmm. and they want to make sure that those bucks are now moving again. So if people are asked to practice certain things during the economy, so to speak, the mm -hmm. same kind of practices can be done during voting. But the local True. people got to put the pressure on these local people. Uh, again, your supervisors, your city council people, your mayor, your people that's in charge of local election to make sure that they do those things. So when people come in that polling place, they feel safe. Right. So just as people are doing other things and they're required to do these things, there's no reason why they can't do that. But these other people, you got to demand, that's what, again, why it's important to elect people who are going to do things that's in your interest. Right to maintain your right. Voting is a right. You should not 
allow that to be taken away under any circumstance. So, Dad, how do I demand that my local official does this? What does that look like? I'm just listening. I'm just trying to work well, at Amazon from can... nine to five and uh, make sure that the lights are still on. What well, now? What... You've added, told me to add in demanding. <laughs> That's right. Demanding is one part of it. Uh, even the people that you didn't elect, and even people that feel they didn't vote to have, they have an obligation to respond to their. Um, to pressure from their constituency. And you, whether you are Republican, Democrat, independent, or non-aligned, you still can put pressure on. You can still can write, you still can call, uh, you still, you got a telephone, you can get on and just, just blow it up if necessary to say, we demand these kinds of things. But ideally, as I said earlier, you wanna put people in place who don't want to engage in voter suppression and therefore would be favorable towards doing these things so you don't have to make the demand after the fact you put in place before the fact. But since we now have these things, barriers, mm -hmm. you don't stop not putting demands on calling. And in some cases, you know, like Trump people are doing now in Michigan, they out there demonstrating mm -hmm. because they feel they have the right and they do have the right to assemble. Uh, they're not letting the, uh, they're not letting the uh, pandemic stop them from demonstrating. Right, right. right? So those, <laughs> those people who want to vote, I shouldn't hesitate to put pressure on these uh, elected officials that they didn't necessarily elect. Right. Put the pressure on anyway. As Trump would love to say, right? The man from New York that's love to say what you got to lose. Right, right. And also put your money where your mouth is in, in terms of a slogan. If you're going to moan and complain about what's going on in your community, be one to be the change. As we said, I know that's very, very much a general statement. But it's true. These people, these people being politicians, have been voted in based on your vote. So if that's the case, these people should have uh, ways where you can get access to them. So Dad mentioned, do. right, right. So that's we want to make that clear so that you, you have access to them. They're not people that are so far removed. They may appear to look that way, but that they are so far removed that they're not going to listen to what you have to say. Now, again, Dad, you have some background in organizing. So some people kind of innately know how to organize and do this thing. But let's just say you don't know how to do that. And I would say that's the majority of again i am making an assumption so email me if i'm wrong but that's the majority of maybe those that are gen z x y whatever it is and millennials uh there are some groups but you can send an email to that office or even on social media now and i've talked about this with friends before a lot of these politicians are on instagram they're on twitter they're on facebook you can follow them every day and see what they're doing in the community, especially right now during the pandemic. They uh, let you know when they have a Zoom call. They give you pretty much access to their lives. So you could even on social media send a message. You can send it anonymously if you don't want someone to see uh, who you are. So they're really, I should say, are not reasons to be connected to your local folks. So again, don't use the excuse of, well, you know, the baby boomers, they were writing letters or they were actually going up to the Capitol. No one has time for that anymore. That's not the case. You can still contact your local folks. And just like you said that you, if you can go to Walmart and get that toilet tissue, if you can go to um, Kmart, if that's still around or go on Amazon and still order whatever products you need for your home, 
you can take that same moment and time to contact your local politician. We're Absolutely. all on Instagram. We're all on Facebook. So there's really not an excuse at this point. You make a very good point, Aisha, very good point. And I'm thinking again, I hear live here in Lafayette County, which is northern Mississippi. And uh, most of the, well, we have mixed bag in terms of the officials, but most of the supervisors, many of them are Republican. And the one that represents my district uh, is a Republican. Uh, he's, in my judgment, a pretty progressive guy. But to give you an example, we talked last week briefly about the old cabin that I had built um, mm -hmm. down in the woods. And we have a road that was in bad shape, basically, that would lead from the main highway to my gate. And it was not, uh, had not been paved in years. And so I called him up. And of course, there was some procrastination where you asked to go and talk to the road manager and call the road manager. So I tried that, that didn't work. So I called up a couple of the people that lived on the road and lived in the community and said, look, I have been coming back and forth down here and I know that other roads have been paved and this road has not been paved. We need to find out what's going on. And so I had them call, I had them write, and I had them say, look, uh, we want to be given priority and we want this road to be paved. We know we have a reserve here in this county. Uh, we see other roads being paved, sometimes not in the kind of shape that my our road is in. Mm -hmm. And within two weeks, within a month, we had our road paved. Uh, it was coming together, getting with people that don't necessarily, you don't even know, and getting mm -hmm. with people who may represent a different political party. But there was a, a, a interest there that all of us could relate to. All of us wanted to see a better paved road, so we got it. Right. The same kind of organizing can take place at any level, but you can't do things by yourself oftentimes unless you've got, you know, deep pockets. But for the most part, organizing, getting a group of people, church people, community people, uh, your sorority brothers and sisters, you name it. Mm -hmm. Anybody you can get to say, we want this done and get them to use the kind of platform that you just mentioned can make a difference. These guys don't listen to pressure. Because right. the one thing any politician wants, whether it's at the local, state, or federal level, is to get reelected. That's true. That's and a good point. And he knows and she knows that if you're dissatisfied, you tee off enough people, you're not going to be reelected. So that's a good point. That's their interest. So you play that. That's a really good point. Even if we talk about Atlanta, and I know many of you that may be listening are in urban communities, you know, even on my street, we have, you know, kids and families, and so we don't have any speed bumps. And so some of these folks are racing down the road. Now, we have a really cool biking community here that's fairly respectful, but even still with that being said, we as a street have begun to come together to talk about how we can implement a, a speed bump on the street. That's just so basic. I mean, but that is something that you know, if you have children or if you have a family, you want your kids to be able to play in the front street and you want to be able to feel safe that they're not going to be hit by a car in plain daylight. So those are simple things like what you're talking about that I think when we think about wanting to make change, we're thinking about just changing the whole financial mm -hmm. structure mm -hmm. or, you know, how can I get more in my stimulus check, whatever, mm -hmm. versus what, what, is going to improve my daily life on a very small scale. Micro level. I. E., right. I.e. a speed bump. 
i.e. a traffic light that has a turning signal so there's less accidents at the corner of my community. Those are things that affect our lives every day. And so we have to think, I think it's more, it's tangible and it's easier to think on that level versus to always just jump into this federal conversation about the president. I agree. I agree. And and we just mentioned that, so I don't need to repeat that, but that's exactly right. That uh, most of what you're going to do in life will take place uh, and much, much stuff that impacts you will take place at the local level and not mm-hmm. the federal level or even the state level. Right. So speaking a little bit about the federal level, even though we don't want to put all the emphasis on it, we kind of gather, I'm sure, as a community where we're going in terms of the two candidates. However, who do you think, you know, I'm leaning more on this side of the Mississippian, but who do you think will probably be a vice president candidate for the Democratic side, I'll just say. And I'm not saying where I stand. I'm just having a conversation about this. Yeah, we just talking. We just having a conversation. That's right. So don't talk. Uh, yeah, we just having a conversation. Well, I think you know Joe Biden, um, you know, has a choice to make, and it's going to be pretty decisive. He's not the most uh, charismatic person in the world, mm-hmm. uh, but he he's likely to be the Democratic nominee. I think Bernie is still going to have some impact, particularly on policy and Warren mm-hmm. and all the others. Almost like a team of rivals. I think if he takes their advice, then select a viable vice presidential candidate that can help him. We could see a major difference in November, particularly in light of the fact that the current man in the highest office in the land is asking people to take disinfectant. <laughs> and, uh, Please and, uh, do not take disinfectant. We are yeah, not we, health we, officials. Yeah, yeah, we, we, <laughs> but we got we some want, common sense. <laughs> yeah, we we want to say that at some point when my grandmother, uh, again, I just... Uh, I take a detour for a moment. When I was a small kid, and my mother would say, "You know, sometime if you put that child thing on that stove, it's gonna burn." So we don't want to. We we just assumed that we were growing up. There were certain products in the house that were used for cleaning, and I think that our parents, even before we took a science course, probably right. told us <laughs> that you don't drink Clorox. <laughs> you know, and although the sun is good for you. But, but it's outside on the surface that, you know. But anyway, right. I'll say all of that because if it weren't, if it weren't so tragic, it, it, it would be funny. Right, I know. Yeah. And, you know, we're laughing about it, but seriously, it's sad that, it's sad that yeah, I even sad. have yeah. to say, Yeah, if it's something get to that, that level, yeah, don't do that. You can't really comment at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but with respect to vice president, yeah, he has a choice. Uh, he could go to the Midwest and get somebody from Minnesota, or he could go, you know, to Michigan and get somebody. I think Biden is already from the Midwest. He's from mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. So he ought to be, if he has any viability, able to do well in Pennsylvania and in Michigan. I understand the polls and they could change, but they're looking pretty well in Pennsylvania. I think the thing now, what happens in, in, in Wisconsin, and who knows, Wisconsin may or may not come around. Mm-hmm. I think the key thing, though, and that's why, you know, like you, I tend to favor, assuming you don't have an ideal candidate like Michelle Obama, and she's not interested, I don't think, mm-hmm. and the next best choice would be somebody like um, Stacey uh, Abrams. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think she brings the only fact she's a woman, black woman, and that's a base of the Democratic Party, but the woman uh, brings uh, enthusiasm 
She campaigned well yeah. uh, in Georgia. I think she could bring that kind of skill set to the national arena. Uh, Barack Obama, although people may have had some issues, the millennials may have had some issues, the General X may have had some issues with his policy sometime and the idea that he was sort of a safe guy mm-hmm. and didn't want to make too many waves. I think given where we are now and given the contrast, there are people out there wishing they had somebody like Barack Obama uh, in the office again. Be that as it may, that's not going to happen, but he is going to be on the campaign. He said he was going to campaign for the Democratic nominee. And I think he'll bring because uh, the danger there, though, and that's what Biden and his people got to watch, is whether somebody on the trail and uh, and they listen to Barack's cadence and his ability to speak, uh, that could push push the presidential candidate in the background. Yeah. And so the same thing with Stacey, who can be very photogenic and looks very well on the trail. She would have to play the role as a partner and not dominate. So that's what they have to watch. But I think, again, looking at his political scientists, uh, he, he would be well served and it would be a major move for him to select somebody like uh, Stacy, because he, as we saw from South Carolina and what eventually happened in Mississippi, Georgia, and, and all the other states that eventually pushed him over, mm-hmm. he's going to have to have a major Democratic turnout, an independent turnout, and progressive Republican turnout to win because even given all the ridiculous statements and that we're getting for coming from the White House, you still have a solid base of people out there who is who will support this incumbent. Right. So and people I should not take it for granted. I have a little concern. I will say around the Bernie folks in terms of if they are just going to sit down or come along and vote during this season. So that that's where my concern right now, you know, lies. I would really like to see those people not sit out. Yeah, I think the difference between now and before, and we can get into some political science, I hope that people don't get bored. In terms of Bernie and Hillary, that was a case where Bernie and his people felt that the election had been taken from him. Mm-hmm. In this case, it was very clear that Bernie, after South Carolina, Georgia, Mississippi, and Alabama, and Texas, that it was over. Yeah. That he was just going to be beat. There was no way he was going to have the numbers to be a nominee. Now, he could still make a decision to go to the convention and get his policy there. But I think he's been sending out nice little um, olive leaves to to Biden that, look, we need to look at some serious things with respect to health care in this country. Mm-hmm. Now, you don't have to be Medicare for all, but somehow, and Bernie is absolutely right, there's no justification for it to ever that children, all children should be covered in, in America. There's no reason why children should not have health insurance. And then they could talk about maybe reducing the age, uh, expanding Medicare mm-hmm. uh, in, in all the various states and expanding Medicaid. And also perhaps looking at dropping the age and looking seriously at this notion of having uh, health care tied to employment. Mm. I think this pandemic has seen the, the obvious contradiction and gap there. If you lose your job, you lose your health insurance. That doesn't make any kind of sense. Now, I'm not saying we would necessarily go to the European model, uh, but right now, I think there are certain things that European models can teach us, not only about healthcare, 
or even about this employment thing, because as you know, in places like France and, and, and England and others, westernized country, that their workers don't lose any pay. Right. You to pay them. So when the economy comes back, they get their jobs. When this economy comes back in America the way it is now, some of these people may not get the jobs back. Right. And that eight weeks of unemployment, you know, is finite. Right. They're not gonna last. A number of things we can do in addition to deciding how we deal with this next uh, presidential thing. But policy-wise, what kind of systemic changes are we going to make in our society so we don't be 10 years from now, 15 years from now, as you get into your prime time, that you make these same mistakes again. The other thing I want to emphasize is a footnote. We need to take science seriously again. Mm-hmm. And uh, that does not mean everybody needs to be a doctor, everybody doesn't need to be a scientist, because we know that's not going to be the case. But we need to have people who are in office at the federal, state, and regional level have a common sense enough and the judgments enough to know what they don't know. So right. they don't know anything put those people in place, those scientists in place who do know something and let them explain to people and you get out the way. Yes, that is critical, critical. Speaking of science, just a a complete shout out again to all of our first responders. Yes. Um, And that now includes quite honestly, our scientists um, in terms of being able to respond to this pandemic, but definitely we are keeping you in thoughts and prayers and appreciate through this time of so much uncertainty, unfortunately, that you are still doing the job that you were called to do and still taking the oath that you stand on. So thank you for that. Well taken. And Aisha, on that note, I know we are probably getting pretty close, but uh, Alicia Keys was just featured a night or so ago Mm -hmm. on uh, on one of the talk shows. And, you know, she has a song that was written before this pandemic. Mm-hmm. And it talked about those people, as we talked about before, who are not no- normally considered to be heroes, those workers out there on the line, as well as those doctors and nurses. And that song is dedicated to them. And I just thought that was so timely. She has a beautiful voice. She's a great mm-hmm. musician. But to have a song like this, that's probably going to go viral. And I should not use that word, given the fact that we have a virus that's, that's right. going viral. <laughs> Yeah. But I mean, that's the kind of thing that, again, we ought to embrace and ought to applaud. Um, because these people that say things like, we're all in this together, some of that's crap because right. some, it's, it's not true. We ought to be all in this together, but we are not all in this together because we have seen examples of disparities that ought not exist. Mm-hmm. And I think moving forward, and I pray moving forward, although I have my doubts, that we will use this opportunity to improve the status quo and not mm-hmm. go back to normal. However, historically, we have seen so many examples where when we come out of the tragedy, we go back to acting our old selves. Right. And uh, maybe this will be different. I hope it will be different. I pray it will be different. My heart tells me it won't be different. My head tells me we're going to get more. (laughs) (laughs) I think that goes to the point in regards to uh, Bernie Sanders as well, because he was trying to move towards the 
this getting away from the status quo. So I, yeah. I want I I'm again hoping that those folks that were followers of Bernie and wanted something new and don't want to return to the status quo, although they may view Biden as the status quo, will still be active in the process to know that this will be probably the last we will see of the 70 plus white male running for president or at least being uh, the main candidate. Oh, there's no question there's a generational change that's going to take place with this election. And that's why I think it's important. You raise a good point about Bernie's people. And I know you can't stereotype because his people are diverse like everybody else. But I think it goes back to the point we were making earlier about being civically engaged. If you don't engage, if you don't vote, what you going to get? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're not only going to get the same, which you have not liked, but you're going to get probably even worse. Right. So, again, here's an opportunity where you participate in a process. It was a process that you could question whether or not it was fair. I think it was more fair than before. And now do you say, I'm going to just take all my marbles and go home? Or are you going to take them marbles and go to the polling place? Uh, I would encourage all Bernie's people, and I supported Bernie uh, Sanders too, uh, particularly last time, although I voted for Clinton when she uh, became the nominee. Uh, initially, I was leaning towards him and some other people, and I saw the handwriting on the wall, and there was a shift to, to Biden. I think Bernie people have an opportunity to have some impact because I think from a policy standpoint, many of the ideas that he's raised, which are great ideas, Mm-hmm. Healthcare are going to be things that, that Biden is going to have to make part of his platform and they'll right. eventually become policy when you elect a Senate and a House. But that's important too. We have to understand that the presidency is just only one branch, contrary to Trump. Uh, the presidency is only one branch and no more, more powerful than the other two branches. So you got to also think not only about the presidency, but about the other two branches as well. And so who you elect is Senate and who you elect, we talked earlier about the Supreme Court thing. Mm-hmm. That's going to be important because moving forward, although the, the, the baby boomers are no longer be in power, but they could put policies in play that will last your lifetime. Right. right. So here's an opportunity now to make a shift and say, look, I'm going to be politically uh, astute and mm-hmm. do long term what's better for me. I'm mm-hmm. going to go with this and have some impact on policy or we don't stay at home and uh, get more of the same, if not worse, because these are going to be policies that are going to impact you, women, right to choose, um, health care, labor issues, all that stuff going to be with you a long time. Right. Get out and, and I, vote. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think what we have concluded in saying is that take the step, just take the step, be it on your local level. Of course, we encourage it on your federal level. But take a step. If that step is literal, walking into the voting booth, if that's literal, sending in your absentee ballot or making a phone call about that, if it's going onto your social media account and just learning who the candidates are, even if we haven't gotten to the voting process yet, do something. Be, as you said at the very beginning of this talk, that uh, be involved in civic engagement. 
be about the, your community. So those things that affect you are going to affect your community. And those things that affect the community are going to affect you. So although we may feel like during this pandemic, especially for the state of Georgia, it's every person for themselves, we can come together and start strategically thinking about how once we come out of this, how things can be better for us all. So thank you, Dad, for taking the time. Well, thank you for co-chairing. As you know, I, I enjoy <laughs> this. Uh, we want people to know this is not something that just we just start doing. We've been doing this for your lifetime, <laughs> at least uh, half of mine. And this podcast is just a way for us to share a relationship that uh, we've always had. And I hope we are uh, conveying that to the to our audience uh, that this is real, um, that there's nothing fake about this, there's nothing mm -hmm. cheesy about this that we talk things that uh, hopefully can be of value, but we enjoy this. And, Absolutely. Uh, whether we're doing a podcast or whether we're offline. Well, thank you all for taking the time to listen in. And don't worry, we have more episodes for you. So please, please, please tune in. Look on the different uh, apps, Spotify, Google, iTunes, whatever you listen to your podcast on. Keep us on auto set and don't uh, leave us at this time. Next week, we're going to talk about mental health in our community in particular. And Dad has uh, done some work around this. He sits on a board that deals with this specifically. And I think it's just an important topic for us to discuss. So I hope that you are able to tune into our next episode. And remember, be safe and share love. Be safe. Share love. If you'd like to contact us, email daddaughterdialogues at gmail.com. That's daddaughterdialogues with an S at gmail.com. And let us know how we're doing, as well as what you'd like to hear us discuss. We appreciate the support and ask that wherever you are, be and stay safe. This is the love. This is the love. This is the love that makes me strong. This is the love that makes me strong. This is the love, this is the love, this is the love that makes me strong. This is the love that makes me strong, yeah. This is the love, this is the love, this is the love, this is the love that makes me strong. This is the love that makes me strong, yeah. This is the love, this is the love, this is the love, this is the love that makes me strong. This is the love that makes me strong, yeah. This is the love.